Welcome to the OC24 podcast, where we've taken some of the best talks and discussions from this year's 24-hour conference on global organised crime, which showcases some of the most interesting research into organised crime around the world. This episode is called Towards a Blue Criminology, How Should We Study Transnational Organised Crime at Sea? Okay, uh, well, uh, good morning, good afternoon and good evening, everybody, depending on where you're joining us from. And welcome to the first uh, session, the first panel of uh, Stream B of the 24-hour conference on global organised crime. My name is Tim Edmonds. I'm Professor of International Security and Director of the Global Insecurity Centre at the University of Bristol. I'm also co-director of the Safe Seas Network on Maritime Security and principal investigator on an ESRC-funded research project on transnational organised crime at sea in the Indo-Pacific. Now, the title of today's panel is Towards a Blue Criminology. How should we study transnational organised crime at sea? And our thinking in putting the panel together is that was that transnational organised crime at sea, sometimes called blue crime, is a growing international concern. Crimes such as piracy, smuggling, illegal fishing, and so on, uh, pose a challenge for maritime law enforcement and increasingly demand new political attention. And we see this um, even at the level of the UN Security Council. The UN Security Council held its first open debate on transnational organised crime at sea in February 2019, and then a follow-up um, in August this year on maritime security more generally. But blue crime also asks new questions of uh, academics and researchers. Blue crimes are complex and diverse, but also often interconnected in important ways, as indeed are the responses to them. And because of this, the study of blue crime perhaps does not fit easily into neat disciplinary silos. Criminology and green criminology, international relations and security studies, law, development studies, uh, and political geography, and many others all have things to say about blue crime and the fight against blue crime. Our challenge in, as scholars working on this issue is both to accommodate the diversity of the crimes that we're looking at, but also recognise their interconnections and, and outline the basis for an integrated response. And we want to have a go at doing some of those things in our panel here today. Um, specifically, we are showcasing research and insights uh, from our panel of experts, who I'll introduce in a moment, asking how should we study transnational organised crime at sea? How can we make the most of interdisciplinarity while avoiding its pitfalls? And what, in essence, should a blue criminology look like? Now, to answer these questions uh, and to present their research, I'm joined by a really fantastic uh, group of panellists. I'll introduce them in the order in which I'm going to ask them to speak, which will be alphabetical by surname. Um, and I will start. we will start with Dr Scott Edwards, who will be speaking on blue criminology towards a transdisciplinary understanding of crime at sea. Scott is a postdoctoral researcher in the School of Sociology, Politics and International Studies at the University of Bristol. He's working on the Transnational Organised Crime at Sea project for the Safe Seas Network, which I lead. And he is an expert on the Southeast Asia region, researching issues of trust, interstate cooperation and maritime security. Scott will be followed by Dr. Mercedes Rossello, uh, who will be speaking on how can blue criminology support legal responses to fisheries crime. Mercedes is a senior lecturer at Leeds Beckett University uh, Law School. She researches public international law, especially issues concerning marine fisheries governance and IUU fishing control. And she published her first book this year, IUU fishing as a flag state accountability paradigm with Brill Nyhoff. Mercedes will be followed by Professor Anna Sergi, uh, who will be speaking on the journeys of complex crimes through the port from the sea and into the city. Anna is Professor of Criminology at the University of Essex with a specialisation in organised crime and mafia studies. 
She works mostly on the mobility of the Calabrian Mafia and more recently on the manifestation of complex criminality in commercial seaports. Her most recent co-authored book was published by Bristol University Press in July 2021 and is entitled Ports, Crime and Security, Governing Seaports in a Changing World. Finally, last but certainly not least, we're joined by Professor Nigel South, who will be speaking on oyster gatherers and cockle pickers, organised crime and the illegal harvesting of seafood. Nigel is Professor of Sociology at the University of Essex. He was an early contributor to the establishment of a green perspective within criminology, uh, beginning with his seminal 1998 article, A Green Field for Criminology, a proposal uh, for a perspective in the journal Theoretical Criminology. He's recently been working on Ecocide at Sea, on the implications of the convergence of COVID and climate change, and on the idea of health justice and the impacts of COVID on indigenous people in Colombia. So that's our panel. Just before we start, I'd like to remind you that we have 75 minutes for this session, so we'll be finishing at quarter past two. I would ask each panelist to speak for no more than eight minutes, please, to be followed by questions and discussion from the audience. So if you have a question, could I please ask you to put that in the Q&A section? I will also be monitoring the chat box, but I'll mainly be keeping an eye on the Q&A session. Um, and without any further ado, I'm going to hand over to our first panellist, who is Scott Edwards. Scott, over to you. Thank you very much for that, Tim. Yeah, hi, everyone. Thank you for having me here. So I'm going to be talking around blue criminology and towards this transdisciplinary understanding of crime at sea today. And the thinking of this paper is, and the research that we're doing is essentially transnational organised crime at sea has risen to the top of the policy agenda now. But with the kind of discussion around blue crimes happening at the margins of some disciplines, like international relations and criminology, and only being a major topic in some other disciplines, such as law and, and political geography and things like that. So the kind of main thinking around this is that we need to work then towards a more integrated organization of research with a stronger analysis of shared themes. And that we need to do this to understand the root causes, motivations, and practical responses of blue crimes, needing to integrate different disciplinary insights and consider more reflexively the peculiarity of blue crime in itself. So the kind of broad aims of the research then is to assess these current academic interventions towards former blue crimes, look at some of the interactions that are happening between disciplines, but also outline the need then for this distinct transdisciplinary field and think about how we might start building some of these bridges and some of these linkages as well. So I guess to start with, like, why, why do we need this blue chronology in the first place? And I think we're looking at this from an angle where blue, blue crime incorporates a mass diversity of activities. And Tim mentioned some of them there, like smuggling, like illegal fishing, uh, piracy, and things like that. And these activities are relatively distinct, and they do have different relationships with the sea, but at the same time, they have very strong interconnections and linkages, and this is something the research is showing more and more. At the same time, the ocean itself, that the space that these crimes happen across or happen on, is also a relatively distinct space as well. It connects different areas. It's fluid. There's a multiplicity of jurisdictions and there is a tendency towards sea blindness and not necessarily kind of recognizing what is happening at the sea. And then also we have limits to and differences between various responses in policing the sea. So I think this sets out why we need this blue chronology or why we need to think about this. If we think about what blue chronology is for us, so far, blue chronology has kind of been discussed as this extension of the green criminology agenda. So very much a focus on environmental harms and looking at the kind of environmental aspects of criminology. But our argument, I think we need to kind of broaden this out to some degree to recognize the other pillars of blue crime and to acknowledge the other crimes that are happening at sea and the intersections that they might have. 
And, and for us, this is kind of very much nested in this broader dynamic to the blue turn and the blue acceleration. So, so the movement towards looking at the sea as a distinct space and where more and more human activity is happening. And here, just a kind of summary uh, of some of the blue crimes that we're thinking of then. So, so the three kind of primary prisons, crimes against mobility, such as piracy, criminal flows, the various forms of smuggling and trafficking, and also the environmental crimes, such as pollution and, and fisheries crimes and things like that. So what we're doing so far, what the kind of paper sets out to do then, is looking at the state of the field. Who is researching blue crime? And where are some of these interactions already happening and where they're not happening? And it should be clear, this is kind of very much in progress. And there's obviously more overlaps and connections than you can see here. But what we have currently is some relatively distinct disciplines focused on very different dimensions of blue crime with various overlaps and some more institutionalized collaborative efforts. But this isn't quite happening to the degree that we argue that it's needed. And in essence, we argue you can't really get a full picture of what's happening when the, these kind of disciplinary approaches are, are as distinct as they are and, and, and kind of separated out as they are. I should be clear, this doesn't cover all disciplines, but, but the paradigmatic works that we're looking at in the field currently draw upon these in some manner. And the conclusion being that it's relatively disjointed and in the paper, we're trying to analyze them. What is it that different disciplines are focused on? What do they draw upon? And what are their current gaps? And as an indicative example of this, then, if we're looking at the state of the field. So if you look at law as a discipline, then it's interested in legislation that is focused on the legal governance of spaces. When we think about how it's been applied to blue crime, the kind of main focus has been on piracy, criminal flows, fishing and environmental protection. So it's so quite a broad breadth of focus. But lacking in some sense, the only focus is, generally speaking, on the explicitly illegal. For international relations and security studies, the primary focus has been on piracy so far. And the dynamics that we're most interested in are things like governance and, and responses and, and the transnationality of responses. But it has been less limited in looking at the causes of crime, looking at the impacts that it has, looking at the different networks, and particularly looking at environmental crimes, even though this is changing to some degree. And then you have some of the much more focused disciplinary areas like the environmental and ocean sciences, by their very nature, this is most limited because its focus is on the measurement and impact of environmental issues. But they do offer a rare insight into these environmental issues. Uh, and these are important interventions as well. So looking at the measurement of management, but less focused on the explicitly criminal. And the kind of conclusion we have if we look at the state of the field then is there's limitations of individual disciplinary approaches when we apply these to issues. And as an example of this, if you look at illegal fishing and the kind of maritime security lens, the securitization of fisheries is slightly problematic in the sense that it ignores small scale fishers, but often the impacts of the responses, the kind of highly securitized responses, impact on these small scale fishers the most. But one of the things that we are drawing out is that there are some promising interactions between these different disciplinary approaches. And this can be definitely seen within environmental crimes, where we start to see more and more disciplinary collaboration and more and more papers drawing upon different kind of disciplinary approaches. And you do get a fuller picture then of what's happening at this level, but these aren't necessarily expanded into other pillars. So what should blue criminology do then? What, what should we set out to do? So I think we should use this to understand how crimes interlink, mutually enable each other and thrive under the same conditions or are committed by the same perpetrators. But I think blue criminology is even more important because we need to think about this as engendering reflexivity to consider these contours of a distinct transdisciplinary field of blue criminology, integrate insights from and seek to fill gaps of current, currently distinct disciplinary approaches to contribute to a better understanding of these crimes and how to prevent them. Scott, so you're, as at eight, a, you're at eight minutes now, Scott. Okay, so 10 seconds. As a, as a very quick conclusion then. So 
the argument has been no one discipline can create a kind of full understanding. The intersections and the understanding of these are currently insufficient. So therefore, we have this call to a blue criminology and this transdisciplinary disciplinarity to cover core objectives of understanding these and beginning to map then where some of these interlinkages might lie. Okay, sorry about that. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Scott. Um, if you could stop scare sharing your screen and I will now hand over to Mercedes. Thank you very much, Tim. Uh, hello, everybody, wherever you are. Um, it may come as a surprise that tools to combat uh, damaging activities are not always conducive to improving the law. Um, for example, the IUU phishing concept uh, can have the effect of obscuring uh, the detail of legal rights and obligations. Uh, part of the problem is that research is uh, often conducted with a focus on the outcome, but does not take into account uh, the law in all its relevant parts. Uh, there can be difficulties when outcomes cannot be achieved uh, once they are immersed in the systemic complexities of the legal frameworks as they are in real life. One tends to find um, that obligations are very often carefully balanced with processes, rights, and freedoms, and these can act as obstacles that cannot just be wished away. For this reason, um, I would like the study of transnational organized crime at sea to enable um, the visualization uh, of the law and the opportunities presented by its discrete as well as its systemic features. My presentation today explores whether blue criminology can help us understand the legal context of the criminal activities under study and, and also whether it provides opportunities to enhance our understanding of legal interactions and interconnections in helpful ways. Uh, I will explore this question with two case studies. Are um, you fishing with unauthorized transshipment and also psycho fisheries? Looking at the blue crime lens, we see that um, it is focused on identifying objects that require protection from harm. Uh, we uh, look at the blue crime lens and we see crime types that break down conducts into objective categories and the categories are organized against objects. These objects ask us to focus on the substance of what needs to be protected from the impact of the criminal activity. Um, so vessels, communities, resources. Uh, by questioning whether these objects are legally protected, the lens can in principle open up a legal landscape beyond that of single treaties such as the UNCLOS. To what extent can it also unveil useful legal interactions and opportunities uh, is a question that uh, I explore briefly with these two case studies. So um, the first uh, example is um, unauthorized transshipment, which is a common element in many IUU fishing operations. A vessel fishes illegally, that means without a license or in breach of the terms of its license, and, and then engages in unauthorized transshipment to hide the provenance of the illegal captures um, or other illegal goods, whilst at the same time evading scrutiny and taxation or fines. If we look at this from the blue crime perspective, with the objects understood as legally protected interests or rights, we find first environmental crime, the object at risk uh, is a natural resource. Here we can immediately see several legally protected rights. The breach or, or lack of a fishing license undermines the right of a state uh, to manage its fisheries uh, as it sees fit um, and can rob it of license fees. That state's rights are recognized on their own clause, but available remedies against perpetrators are typically quite limited. In the transshipment, we see also a transit crime. Uh, we see an activity that is a little bit like trafficking. Um, it's carried out to avoid taxation or fines and to blur the origin or, of products and evade controls. This activity type can undermine the rights of other states as well, those that could have received revenue from taxation or products uh, uh, or income, but uh, were deprived uh, of this opportunity by the blurring effect of the unauthorized transshipment. Uh, 
And, and we see here also uh, interest and rights beyond the state, the individual rights of purchasers of the seafood, for example, who are also protected under fraud laws, especially if the product is portrayed to them as legal or sustainable. So we see a typical IUU fishing operation can cross blue crime categories, and we see that the objects within these categories already are beginning to help us see a legal landscape that is much richer than that provided just by treaty law. We see the legal risk at stake. Uh, we see that uh, they uh, can be public or private, uh, we also see a commonality of interest across states whose rights are similarly threatened by a single IUU fishing operation. Uh, now turning to, uh, to Psycho, um, it's a very different uh, type of activity, presents with a very different scenario. Um, However, the environmental depletion that we saw in the previous example is replicated here. We, uh, we see that, but we also see some additional issues. Psycho involves the invasion by trawlers of artisanal and subsistence fishing grounds and the removal of staple stocks. Um, the communities uh, then buy uh, those stocks back of the trawlermen. Now, activities like this may seem to us to be uh, repugnant, but the degree to which they are criminalizable depends on the legal context uh, and uh, uh, depends often uh, on whether they are operated under genuinely obtained licenses or not. Psycho operators in this example provided by uh, EJF um, often destroy small-scale fishing gear. So this is essentially damage to someone's right to property, and there may be legal protections in response to this kind of destruction. These are communities that may not be able to obtain the protection of uh, uh, limited uh, uh, state finance police resources, for example. And also, um, they are communities whose interests may not be represented in the type of international negotiation that leads to the uh, sale of expensive licenses to foreign interests, for example. Um, however, the domestic legal framework might recognize claims for their damage to property rights, including the rights of individuals within these communities. Also, in some countries, there may exist rights associated to territory and to the use of territorially contained natural resources, um, and, and these rights offer communities greater protections. Um, now, we could think that private rights are out of place in the fight um, against crime. Um, and that they are comparatively weak as a tool, but in some cases they may well be the only tool available, um, and they could catalyze change for some people um, in adverse circumstances. They also, if successful, can hurt in the very heart of every legal fisher's purpose, which is, of course, the profit. Uh, we do need innovative frameworks for, anal for, for analysis uh, with the potential to help us understand what legal mechanisms are available, what forces can mobilize them, and to learn and compare what the legal practice of states is across regions so that we can learn from those who are doing it best. In this brief analysis, we have seen that as well as highlighting intersections between criminal activity patterns, blue criminology also has the potential to highlight intersections between rights and interests, particularly in the uh, transit crime in the first example, um, uh, you know, we see uh, intersections between uh, uh, state interests. This realization is often the first step towards cooperative international action and therefore merits exploration. Uh, to conclude, uh, I would say that blue criminology has, in my opinion, potential to help us explore and understand opportunities for legal learning. Um, and I shall look forward to seeing the rewards in future research. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Mercedes. Um, we are now, and thank you very much for our speakers for, for more or less speaking, stick it, sticking to their eight minutes. Could I please remind the audience that we do have a Q&A box. So if you have questions for the discussion session, we're likely to be able to have around uh, 25 minutes for, 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 for discussion. Please do ask questions of the panel if you have them. Um, 
if you could thank you, Mercedes, I will now hand over to Anna. Hello, everyone. So I'm going to share my screen as well, uh, but I wanted to try and do it. Okay. Right. So. More complicated than I thought at this stage. There we are. Okay. So I only have eight minutes, so I have a choice to speak at the speed of light, which I'll try to do. Uh, so this is just as a snippet of my research uh, imports. I've looked at the complex criminality imports for uh, two years and a half now. And I've started with Genova and Gioia Tauro in Italy, then moved to Melbourne, Montreal, New York, New Jersey. Liverpool, uh, and then in 2021, I added Felix Do and last week, Belfast, and I'm going to Piraeus in January uh, with, a, with a project, actually, with a global initiative against transnational organized crime on the um, southeastern maritime routes of illicit trade in commercial seaports. I'm very much looking forward to Piraeus. Um, uh, I've published uh, already some parts of my results, um, and the most interesting part of this has been a never-ending learning experience of what we call now blue criminology, which is, to me, essentially trying to understand what makes the space of the port uh, particular um, and essentially understanding what is it about the port from a criminological perspective that um, um, changes dynamics when it comes to understanding um, uh, how the world works, including the criminal world. And obviously, this has been a research that has taken me everywhere, uh, and I've, I've absolutely loved um, uh, every second of it, and I'm sharing some pictures just because I can. Um, when we look at uh, the ports, um, the ports are obviously within the global trading network and the global production networks. Um, they are within uh, global supply chains, and we see we we've seen what happens when this supply chain breaks down. I think of the Suez Canal and pass uh, in the past, but what. Um, I've, lo I've looked at and we've looked together with my colleagues when writing our last book, Ports, Crime and Security, um, we are more and more interested in uh, the dry ports, the dry ports being uh, where the logistic activities and the cluster of production of the city meet the port. So it's no news that the port economy um, is on a path dependency with models of capitalism, obviously global globalized economic tendencies meet institutional framework. Uh, so the ports can act, um, actually appear um, extremely global on one end, but also extremely local on the other end. Uh, when we look at um, the port in the middle between the sea and the, and the city, what we see is that there are a number of um, considerations uh, to make. On the port city interface side, we do see how uh, criminality is affected by uh, what we consider shipping routes qualifiers, whether or not a journey of a, of a ship, for example, is making different stops, the frequency of the ship uh, and the route, different type of commerce and trade agreements at sea, uh, different type of corruption level within the maritime economy companies, um, effectiveness of border control and existing criminal network at sea. When it comes to the poor city interface, we do see that uh, criminality um, affects the port city interface or is affected by the city in the port city interface when it comes to transport links to the port infrastructures, um, whether or not there are um, port facilities of different sorts, security devices, barriers and fences. Uh, so typical um, environmental criminology stuff, um, but also public and private contracts allocation for construction of different services at the port, changing policies, of course, uh, especially for security and existing forms of extra legal governance in the port workforce, which is very, very much in the minds of everyone who have watched The Wire season two. Um, so with this in mind, with understanding that the port is in the middle between the, the sea and the city and actually should be at the center of our, one of the principal nodes of our blue criminology, um, I'm trying to look at uh, how much uh, does the assessment of organized crime in the city, or generally speaking in the region or in the, in the nation, mirrors in the assessment of organized crime in the port, which essentially means how much does the economy of the port, that, does the economy of the port intertwines with that of the city and vice versa when it comes to um, um, criminal opportunities. 
This um, brings me to ask different questions. To what extent familiarity of relations in the port affect productivity? The port, as I said, is a global node, but it's uh, it's uh, heavily regulated, but it's also very, very much um, local and everyone knows each other. So public-private tension in the way the institution um, police and securitize the port and obviously specific vulnerabilities of the port, whether the port is at the border, whether it's a transit zone, what type of city there is behind. And when it comes to uh, one of the most, um, let's say, studied um, organized crime of all times, which is uh, importation of drugs, importation of cocaine in the specifics of uh, what I looked at. Portville, which is uh, a port city, essentially the ones that I've seen, um, uh, it obviously can be studied in different ways with the port as at the core of the understanding by looking at the different uh, steps of uh, the illicit trade. On one side, illicit trafficking is always limited by illicit trade. So you can't, traffickers cannot invent routes that are not there. But drug importation, when it touches the port and it gets onto the city, uh, appears uh, to be particularly, um, particularly different. So drug importation is opportunistic. Uh, it's somewhat disorganized. Anyone can use the port uh, to um, essentially import cocaine. Uh, but distribution, once it arrives in the port, is often a close game. So the groups in the city who receive uh, the drugs will have their own, um, let's say, organized um, territory. So it's, it's uh, difficult to understand how a port then can be exploited by everyone can eventually lead to a fairly close game when it comes to uh, drug importation. Uh, all different groups who invest in the port uh, for importation of drugs will look for doors, which means that there are multiple possibilities, multiple routes, multiple opportunities, depending on whether the importer is also the person who, who, the, who curates, let's say, its own trafficking, or if instead is he or she is just collecting and receiving the drugs directly. I call this the pizza delivery and pizza collection. And if you're interested in that, I can give you something to read. Um, something else to consider, increasing security measure in the port, displace activities, but also create activities for offending. So more and more um, we see in large seaports, we don't have um, organized crime in the actual terminal of the port, but uh, it's somehow the port is used as conduit and the dry port is more important than the port when it comes to uh, organized crime finishing off their job. Um, the unpredictability of control activity and the less formal compliance requirements of a port may yield extra knowledge um, and impact drug, import and drug importation for law enforcement. Unfortunately, law enforcement has very little reach into ports um, in certain ports, um, and this is actually obviously a problem. Anna, you're coming uh, up to eight minutes now. Yes, um, this is my last uh, slide. So what we can see is that um, there are uh, conditions uh, that uh, in somehow regulate uh, how much complex criminality, especially drugs, we can have in ports. One is the success of trade. If trade in a port goes down or goes up, this will be the same for um, um, illicit trade. The capacity of criminal networks in the city will um, manifest also in the port in, in the terms of adaptation. So the, the organized crime groups behind the ports uh, in the city will be able to adapt quicker to the changes that occur in the port and facilitate others uh, in their own criminal business. The ability of local and global actors to enter certain business. So obviously this is a complicated issue, but um, we are talking about whether or not uh, the workforce has developed extra legal governance or there are local, local level actors who can exploit certain parts of the port economy. And obviously the resources and capabilities of law enforcement, including security and uh, policing and inst uh, institutions. And I hope it was somewhat clear <laughs> because I was very fast, um, but I leave uh, the floor to uh, Nigel. Thank you. Okay, this uh, is in contrast to Anna's. It's less um, obviously about the transnational. It's more about what we could call coastal crime, but it does nonetheless involve um, migration and international displacement of, for example, the uh, effects of pollution. 
Uh, and I'll be talking about oyster gatherers and cockle pickers, um, which in relation to organised crime and illegal harvesting of seafood, say something about the underpinnings of this, both theoretically and uh, in relation to organised crime, a bit of history and a few cases. So an OECD report on uh, converging criminal networks points out that environmental crime can be driven by perceptions of low risks and high profits, uh, has become significant uh, in recent years, and can have uh, obviously disastrous impacts on the environment and costs for future generations. Van Oom and Dana Siegel uh, say several economic sectors are vulnerable to infiltration by organised crime. Many organised crime, environmental crimes, are non-conventional forms of organised crime, and that's particularly of interest to us today. Uh, more specifically, the product as such is not always illegal. Uh, all of this can also involve examples of diversification, uh, for example, from drugs to wildlife, which uh, Dan Ranoum and Tanya White and I have written about. Uh, and that's just an example where a drug trafficking group is profiting from um, the sale, uh, the illegal trafficking of totoba fish bladders on the black market in China. Uh, so it's, it's a broad uh, area that we could be looking at, and I'm being quite focused here. I'm looking at a formula that involves low risks and high profits. Um, low cost can be based on exploited cheap labour. And if you combine that with uh, the factor of scarcity and luxury, you can get a high price for what, you talk, what you're selling. Or you can combine that with a factor of easy harvesting of high volume, which produces a low price. And all of this meets substantial market demand to create this illegal market. And the examples I'm talking about are oysters, and common cockles. It's sociologically or criminologically interesting here because status is partly based on scarcity, but it's also socially constructed. Foods that are symbols of wealthy lifestyles or the common culture of everyday life are worth thinking about as part of the blue criminology. Uh, some writers have said luxury seafood includes species with a high price, excellent quality, enhances positive feelings, has symbolic social and individual values and so on. And oysters fit that category. Uh, whereas there's a social history of the place of cockles in the everyday uh, working class trip to the seaside, uh, still found up and down seaside towns in England in vinegar, white pepper. You stick them in a, a tub and you, you eat them with a fork and so on. Um, two contrasting forms of uh, seafood. Uh, and... Van Oom and Siegel's analysis of the trade in black caviar illustrates some of these points very nicely using George Zimmel's uh, theoretical work about the value of an object not being inherent. Uh, it's about the valuation of the object, which increases the meaning of the object in a certain social context increases. Luxury goods have certain symbols attached to them. For example, caviar equals Russia in, in, in the way we think about it as a, as a luxury good. Uh, but we should remember that caviar was at one time in Russia a food of the peasants. Fashion and fishing patterns have affected availability and perception. And in 1920s and 30s UK seaside towns, the working class ate oysters in large quantities while on holiday. They were not seen as a luxury good, they were plentiful. Um, so oysters have this interesting history once uh, available to all um, the rich as well as the poor, a fast food for the rich and the poor. So uh, we also need a, a kind of historical dimension to a blue criminology. And if you just Google oysters today, you see them very much presented as a luxury item. Uh, we now have around the British coast Pacific oysters, uh, very plentiful. They're an invasive, non-native non imported variety originally from Japan. Uh, and the rapid growth of this species is that they're easily found in large quantities. In 2020, organised crime groups were found sending gatherers or pickers from London to the South Essex coast, South End, Canby, and up into Suffolk. And police arrested illegal pickers with 300 kilograms of oysters worth around £4,000. This is not a huge amount, but most activity is undetected and labour costs are very low. Police and local authorities identify this as a gangmaster-type organised crime operation, very often involving double exploitation, very low pay, but also reported to be mainly Asian women or other migrant workers doing the work. 
It's obviously been happening for years. We need more evidence to actually track a timeline. There are problems here, fear of dangers to the legal trade and a severe public health risk. Oysters are legally caught a process to purify and check for diseases, for example, norovirus, so illegal supply can pass diseases to humans. Turning to the common cockles, historically they're cheap, they're abundant, but farming them is precarious. Typically they have to be picked, de-shelled, and there's also a large demand because they're used as bait for larger fish. So they're common but in demand and organised crime avoid regulations and pay costs to supply them. As I say, typically this is a gangmaster operation exploiting illegal migrant labour, and this was famously exposed in the case of the Morecambe Bay cockle picking tragedy in 2004. There, after that, a gangmaster and others were uh, jailed for manslaughter after a tra tragedy uh, involving uh, the deaths of 23 exploited Chinese workers in 2004. Many people will remember the, the case. Uh, what might be less obvious is how this illustrates an interconnectedness of environmental harms and illegal trades. Because in 2002, the prestige oil tanker uh, spilled oil off the coast of Spain, affecting the entire Galician coast, closing it for fishing and shellfish extraction, uh, an impact that lasted several months and with longer lasting impacts uh, for some time longer. And this increased demand uh, and reduced supply elsewhere, which stimulated illegal harvesting in places like Morecambe. The Gangmasters and Labour Abuse Authority was set up in response to the Morecambe Bay tragedy, and police now also use patrols and drones in uh, anti-organised crime operations. Uh, again, in one week in 2020, there was a seizure of 810 kilograms of shellfish mixed. Um, this was estimated retail value of £11,000, cockles, oysters, other shellfish. Again, not a huge amount, but very low costs. And as with drug seizures, it's very hard to determine the multiplier that could be applied regarding undetected, undetected activities. So we can perhaps learn something from looking at other illegal markets to uh, understand the, the limitations of what we know and what we can try and uh, better understand. Recently, GLA has increased in court enforcement efforts uh, due to increased reports about unsafe working conditions and labour exploitation in shellfish gathering. There's certainly a possibility that illegal shellfish harvesting has been filling a gap in the market caused by COVID-19 lockdown impacts. And shellfish reports now account for almost a quarter of total referrals to the authority, which is one indicator of an increase in this kind of illegal um, activity. So in conclusion, uh, these are obviously not new forms of organised crime, uh, but seem to be increasing. Overharvesting in protected areas disturbs local coastal ecologies and deprives seabirds, such as oyster catchers, and crabs uh, and others of food. Without abiding by food safety regulations and proper preparation processes, the activity, the market, runs the risk of affecting consumers with diseases. And finally, this is an example of how studies of organised crime, food crime and green crime overlap and need more attention. <clears throat> and uh, the work of Alice Rizzuti on organised food crime is a good kind of pathway uh, to, towards uh, bringing some of this together. Thank you very much, Nigel. Okay, so we now have 25 minutes for our Q&A um, uh, uh, with questions from the audience. We have a number of questions that have come in using the Q&A function. There's also some questions that have come in via chat that Anna has very kindly uh, responded to in the chat. So I'm not going to touch on those because um, if you would like to see Anna's answers to those, please, please look in the chat. I'm going to collect um, uh, collect some questions together and then put them to the panel and ask them to respond. Then hopefully we will have time for a second round and maybe even a third round of questions. So do please keep adding questions to the Q&A if you have them. So looking at the Q&A, I think there are broadly three categories of questions that we have here. One, the first is a series of, qu of, of questions around ports, that, that I, uh, some of which are directed specifically towards Anna and I think probably Anna is best placed to answer. Um, then we have a, a question on harms, uh, 
um, which I think uh, which, which I think most of the panelists will be able to contribute to, and then one on uh, the role of uh, of sailors in 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 blue crime. So on on ports, um, I'm going to collect a few of the ports quest questions from 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 here. The first one. Um, the USA owns the rights to the world GPS system, but this is changing due to quantum. China is expected to take this over. Can the rest of the world keep up? Um, and then our second ports question is, Anna, would you, what would be examples of extra legal, legal governance that you could observe? So if you could keep those at the back of your mind, I'll come back to you and, and let you answer in a minute. The second question around harms, I think it will be of interest to a number of our panelists. As green criminology has started to consider the intersection between rights and interests on the part of non-human animals as victims, please could you speak about the potential for blue criminology to consider this intersection uh, debate in relation to aquatic animals too? Now, obviously this speaks to Nigel's presentation. It speaks to some of Scott's points around, um, uh, uh, around um, uh, environmental crimes, and it speaks to Mercedes um, comments on criminalization and and the role of law. So um, so 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 there's that one. And then our final question is: Has any panelist ever looked into the role of sailor seamen as some sort of civil society group to help law enforcement in dealing with blue crime? Now, Mercedes has volunteered to answer that question, one of those questions first of all, first of all. So I'm going to I'm going to make the most of her her volunteering, and I'm going to go to you first, Mercedes. Um, I, I, if others want to come in on the specific question of harms, please do so. Then I'll turn to Anna. Then I'll open up the question on sailors. Mercedes. Thank you very much, Tim. Yes, I thought I would um, answer Syed's uh, question um, on the role of sailors and seamen as some sort of civil society group to help with law enforcement. Um, and I would like to mention two, two uh, possible uh, uh, elements in this answer. Um, first of all, I think this, this example already exists. Um, I know the Environmental Justice Foundation, whose materials I used for my presentation, um, have facilitated uh, technical capability to local fishermen um, specifically for this role. Um, and what they do is they uh, provide artisanal fishermen with um, uh, handheld technology, mobile phone-based technology, um, to be able to uh, document instances um, of illegal fishing and uh, uh, fishing gear destruction. This is then used uh, uh, locally and domestically um, as evidence uh, uh, for uh, subsequent actions uh, uh, from the police or, or in court, etc. So, um, yeah, so this is something that already exists. Um, however, I think the uh, the most problematic part of this is not the collection of evidence, as in this example, but is the uh, engagement of uh, uh, groups uh, in traditional law enforcement activities uh, for which we normally have the police or, or the army. The reason why this is legally problematic is because um, you, you could find yourself in a situation where these groups transition into vigilantism and, and start uh, carrying out uh, activities and operations for which they don't have uh, legal competence. Um, there is also the other side of the coin, the people who are operating in the marine environment as legal uh, uh, legal businesses. So that, you know, the legal fishermen, they can encounter these groups and they need to have legal security uh, regarding their activities and what they can and cannot do. Um, and uh, uh, certainly they wouldn't expect to be uh, placed in harm's way um, over something that they are doing provided that is, it is within legal parameters, but those legal parameters have to be clear to everybody. Um, so that's kind of my answer. Uh, there, are two, there are two sides to this. One of them is, is good and feasible and in some parts of the world already being done. And the, the other one is, um, you know, there are potential dangers to this that we need to be aware of. I hope that answers your question, Sayed. Thank you, Mercedes, and apologies. I, I, I was a little bit confused with which question I directed to you. Would anybody else on the panel like to come back on the question of um, sailors 
and um, uh, 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 as, as assisting law enforcement in blue crimes. Okay, in which case I'm going to go to each of the rest of our panellists in order to respond to the questions as they wish. Scott. Yeah, great. Thank you. Um, so, yeah, thinking around the, especially like the green criminology and the kind of non-human harms, I, I think this is, this is one of the kind of reasons I think that it's important that we do bring in these different disciplinary approaches, right? And I think this is because each kind of discipline does focus on very different like victims or perpetrators and, and things like that. So it actually allows us to think more broadly around this problem of crime and, and criminality. And, and I do think in blue criminology, there is a space to be thinking about non-human non harms. Um, if you look around like protection of whales and, and other kind of charismatic marine life and things like that. But I think as like a kind of main example of this uh, and, and looking at these kind of broader, this broader set of crimes and using these disciplinary approaches to do it, would be around something like ocean grabbing, for example, or land grabbing, grabbing ocean space. And quite often this is perpetrated by corrupt states, people who are in power. So it's not explicitly criminal and therefore would be relatively easy to dismiss within a lot of different disciplines. But if we bring in these different disciplinary approaches like green chronology and things like that, you recognise it does cause harm. It causes harm for various communities that aren't the state. It does cause harm for non-humans if, if this land is then exploited and these kind of like other species and things like that. So, so for me, having these different, I mean, that's one of the reasons we need these different disciplinary approaches. So we can consider these different forms of, of, of victims and, and different perpetrators and things like that. So, yeah, I hope that kind of goes some way to answering the question. And I, and I would say, I think when we were building around this and thinking around blue criminology, I mean, green criminology was a strong basis for this because of the breadth of issues it approaches and the, and the way it kind of goes beyond this very legalistic sense of what crime actually is. I'm probably much more limited in what I can say compared to uh, Nigel on this. <laughs> Just before I hand over to the other panellists, Scott, would you like to comment on either of the other questions? Um, I think everyone else would have more to say on those than okay. I would, so thank you. <laughs> uh, okay, I'll next go to Anna and then to Nigel. Anna. Uh, yes. So um, let me see uh, which question. So in, in as it, uh, okay, so the quantum one, so the world GPS system that is changing to quantum, um, well, it depends. I mean, it depends on which area of the world. I think that um, different seas and different ports will react differently. So a lot of um, the activity that I've looked at deals with uh, the transportation of il different illicit commodities in the north. Uh, sometimes through the south, uh, but directed to the north. And in this sense, it's, it really doesn't matter whether or not you can follow the better the ship in a way, if you can uh, have a more precise uh, location of, this, of the ship, even with or without um, GPS, because the, the ship is not the issue. The issue is the container and what is in the container. So the, it's precisely that, the exploitation of the legal business that um, is, is the most problematic bit. So no one uh, supposes, uh, no, no one wants to do things illegally, fully legally. They have to have still the legal one. But in some parts of the world where ships do carry uh, different type of things, including weapons um, or different, different types of, um, uh, yeah, I would say weapon is probably the best, the best example, um, where sometimes the ship does do a detour because it's the whole ship uh, which is somewhat uh, carrying or knowing that they are carrying something illegal, that might make a difference. But I guess uh, for the purposes of uh, drug trade, I don't, I don't think this is going to change much at least not uh, in that I can see but obviously happy to be to discuss this as for the rest um, I've already respond, responded to Helid um, the example of extra legal governance as I said the um, most um, the clearer one which are in every court that I've seen uh, have to do with um, the unions and with the infiltration of the port workers whether they are unionized or not even in countries where the unions do not have the kind of um, role that they have for example in uh, liberal neoliberal countries neoliberal systems such as the US uh, even in the UK when it seems to be something from the past the um, entering from within um, the unions and the port 
support workers uh, in a systemic way and not just in a kind of a op- occasional way is probably one of the most uh, problematic ones. It's not the most um, visible one. So that's probably why it's difficult to observe. Uh, and it's supposedly a thing from the past, if they make sense. Um, and yeah, so that's, I think those are the questions for me. Um, I think you can, I will, yeah, just leave it to Nigel now. Thank you. Thank you, Anna. Over to you, Nigel. Okay, uh, thanks. I've done a lot of work on drugs, so I'm trying to get away from them. But uh, Helen's question um, was uh, quite interesting. Uh, it all depends, of course, what, what drugs are legalised. Uh, because if you, if you have a legal market, but some drugs are still illegal, then you'll still have some uh, importation. And my guess would be that they would probably still be the, the traditional, fairly familiar uh, routes to importation. If you think about the crypto markets or digital drug markets, uh, that seem very 21st century and innovative. They're still dependent on somebody delivering the postman or Amazon or whatever, delivering parcels. So, you know, uh, we wait and see. Uh, my main comments would be about um, the green criminology or blue criminology and a blue victimology. We've got a green victimology. There's quite a lot of work on it. Uh, it's a really interesting question. And there's uh, a, a broad range of ways you could look at it. It, it raises all kinds of um, moral and cultural issues as, as in the same way that uh, wildlife or animal abuse or <coughs> speciesism uh, does or what Pierce Burns called theory aside. Um, there are obviously already debates about uh, attributing rights to marine mammals um, <coughs> um, based on various criteria to do with intelligence or their uh, uh, their warm bloodedness and so on. And there's a huge literature on this now, I think, actually. Um, I've done some work with uh, Asuncio Garcia Ruiz about the impact of noise and sound on marine species, uh, which, uh, you know, has been debated, I think, uh, internationally, how to reduce um, the noise impact on ocean-going vessels, on, 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 on sea life. Um, there's a lot of literature on extinction threats, uh, you know, the right to life is threatened by extinction. Uh, and then, of course, there's quite a lot on, on cruelty and abuse of captive marine animals. And really, that goes back uh, <clears throat> a few decades now, where um, you started to have places like Sea Life Aquaria opening up, and there's always been that debate about it. So I think once you started to look at this area, you'd find actually quite a lot of material on uh, what we could now call a blue victimology. Thank you, Nigel. I do have um, one more question and probably a question I'd like to ask myself. I just I I just realised, however, Anna, that you only answered, you only addressed the port questions. Was there anything else you wanted to come back on on the other questions as well? Anna? Yes. Uh, no, I mean, it's, uh, I think it's, I, I did answer all the questions and there was, there were questions in the, in the chat that I've already answered. I think the rest is okay. for me. Thank you. Thank you. So we, we have a question um, on to what extent can blue criminology be used as a framework for looking at the violence against people on fishing on illegal fishing vessels, for example, forced labour, assault and so on. And I'm going to abuse my position as chair as asking a question as well. And I guess this one's particularly to Mercedes. Um, and, and I'm struck by listening to your presentation that a lot of the responses to the, the problem of criminalisation in, in blue crime, the fact that certain crime, certain activities are not explicitly illegal under certain countries, um, legal statutes and so on, has been a kind of a, a response that looks at legal capacity building and the, the introduction of those statutes into law. Um, I was wondering, do you think there's the um, possibility for um, a, a parallel approach, perhaps, that looks precisely around the way in which uh, we can think about these kinds of things creatively through through legal obligations that are there. And is there a way that that might be spread through le- things like less lear- lessons learned, best practices, and so on? So, for example, so 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 the question is really about uh, how do we respond to crimes beyond criminalisation? So um, I will open those questions up to the panel, and I will take them in the. I will just go through each of the panelists in the order in which they spoke. So, Scott, would you like to respond on 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 any of those? Yes, very good. Um, yeah, thinking about the violence against people and especially like a lot of the human rights and the, the labour abuses. And, and I think essentially this is 
this comes about like being one of the reasons that we think fluconology is an important intervention, right? Because it allows us to think about these connections and these intersections. And I think this is a really kind of clear case where that's happening because it's only recently, I think, I mean, in the past decade in particular, where there has been a strong focus on kind of like slavery at sea, forced labour in the, in the kind of supply chain for an illegal fishing. And what we see then is these practices which allow illegal fishing to occur, you know, the evasion of law enforcement, the, the kind of tendency not to return to ports and stay out at sea for a long time. It, they don't just facilitate illegal fishing, but they do facilitate other forms of criminality as well. And I think that's where blue criminology becomes important because the focus on looking at these connections and these intersections, not only looking from one distinct approach, therefore allows us to kind of spot these other forms of criminality and consider the linkages between different types of, of criminal activities and criminal practice as well. So, so as a kind of short answer, I think this is where blue criminology would come into its own because it allows us to look at fisheries crime as this broader holistic problem where, where there's not just the criminality of taking the fish, but also forced labour and, and human rights abuses as well. Thank you. Thank you, Scott. Mercedes. Yes, hello. Yes, I, I have to say I totally agree with Scott on this. And I think this is uh, a clear example of why labels like fisheries crime or are you fishing don't always work so well, because what we see happening on board of fishing vessels goes well beyond the fisheries. Um, the, the fisheries really is just the act of extracting the resource from the sea, but there is a, a lot more um, that is going on. And these interconnections are also the reason, the main reason why um, looking at problems through single international treaties uh, doesn't work so well often either um, because we uh, uh, you know we've, we find that the treaties are, are, are focused on very very specific issues to try and constitutionalize if you want the uh, laws of different states around these usually very serious issues and um, but then you find ramifications of the criminal activity that escape um, the boundaries of the treaties so you know the, this this uh, issue of the forced uh, labor and slavery on force uh, on board of fishing vessels and even even murder in the high seas uh, and so on this is a clear example of this we clearly we already have laws um, against murder and for the protection of human uh, rights. And yet we see this happening in situations where the, the, the law doesn't work so well. Um, there are um, you know, jurisdictional uh, issues why this is problematic. Um, uh, uh, states have to invest a lot of resources to um, investigate um, and, and, and sort of respond to crime that happens in situations where jurisdictional boundaries are not entirely clear. Um, so yes, I think uh, blue criminology is uh, uh, innovative enough and transnational enough to enable us to uh, see uh, ways in which we could uh, address these issues uh, more effectively. Um, I think there's still a lot of research to be done on this, but I look forward to that. Would any of the other panellists like to come in on those questions? If I can just say briefly, because I know we are about to finish, um, in terms of violence uh, and blue criminology, I think it kind of, so I, I don't, I haven't researched illegal fishing, uh, but I'm thinking about the situation, the difficulty that some states uh, authorities have when it comes to drugs um, and obviously linking that with the reality of their own um, state. So I'm thinking about the Netherlands and the recent upsurge of interest in, uh, in the violence that, you know, apparently the, it, it's linked somehow to the port of Rotterdam and to the fact that obviously Rotter between Rotterdam and Antwerp there is this very long shore of ports that are the biggest and brightest of Europe and receive a lot of drugs and this has a, this seems to have an effect or at, at the very least a correlation with violence in the cities and in the territories around so I think in that sense if we consider the specificities of the port economy and within the port city interface, uh, we can also contribute to discourse on violence and organized crime outside the what are essentially the entry points of the blue economy, which is in my case ports. So there is a reason why uh, uh, something like a port in all its glory attracts crime in a certain way and, uh, and the ways in which distribution and trafficking work 
might take on certain uh, configurations that will lead to obviously competition. And this is something that we can comment on within the specificities of the blue um, crime perspective, because ports are really very much a, a part of that. So it's not about illegal fishing, but it's still about violence. <laughs> Thank you, Anna. Nigel. I was just going to say, yes, an obvious area to develop you know, the similar issues um, and cases in what's called rural criminology and green criminology, forced labour, migrant labour abuse in farming um, and, and in all kinds of other uh, contexts. So it's an area to develop in blue criminology. And we, and we can we can look at the literature that exists elsewhere and, and pull over lessons and, 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 and insights. Thank you. Um, now, I'm aware that I think the panel is coming to a close, uh, will be closed on our behalf at uh, at 15 minutes past. So I, I uh, we do have one more question, actually, that I, if someone could answer quickly, we may be able to fit in um, around um, uh, calculating the overall revenues of transnational organised crime at sea. Um, so there is a question about data and, and data collection. Um, and the problem, the example that's given is IUU fishing, but is mainly connected with other different crimes and takes place mainly in the middle of the oceans and therefore is hard to monitor. So I wonder if someone would like to very quickly um, uh, address that question and perhaps say something about the kind of data that we have on transnational organised crime at sea. Scott? Yeah, thank you. Uh, I'll, I'll try to go very fast in the, the time of it. So I'd say, I mean, if people are interested in this, I'd point, so Safe Seas recently did free reports looking at various kind of uh, quality of data around different crimes around these three pillars. And I think the kind of conclusion essentially is that, that the data is very problematic. For, for some crimes, we actually have quite a lot of data, uh, especially around piracy and, and reporting and lots of things like that. But, but for other crimes, data is a lot more difficult to get towards. It's hard to get a strong sense of what's happening um, and the quality of data collection, the way it's organized isn't necessarily as strong. So it's a very quick answer. I'd say it's, it very much differs between different crimes on how strong the data is, but there's still a lot of gaps here and there's a lot more work to be done in, in finding better data to, to inform. Thank you. Okay, everybody, we're now at 13 minutes past. So before we get the cut off, I'm going to bring uh, the panel to a close. I'd like to thank all our panelists for some fantastic presentations. Thank you to those of you who put in uh, put in some excellent questions. And I hope the rest of you uh, found, the, found the panel interesting and rewarding. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, and I look forward to taking this agenda forward in future. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the OC24 podcast. For more talks, have a look at the podcast feed on whichever platform you use. There are loads more to listen to. Video versions of these talks are also available on the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime YouTube channel. If you would like to share these talks around, we ask that you use the hashtag OC24 and let us know what you think. The 24-hour conference on global organised crime is brought to you by the European Consortium of Political Research Standing Group on Organised Crime, the Centre for Information and Research on Organised Crime, the International Association for the Study of Organised Crime, and the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime. For more information, head over to oc24.globalinitiative.net. This has been the OC24 podcast from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime. Thanks for listening.